punctuates it, and he creates his own offensive chance with that motor. Krejci to Coyle, and the Leafs are moved again! Hello, welcome into the Nesson.com Bruins Podcast. I'm Nesson.com's Nesson Bruins Podcast. I'm Nesson.com's Mike Cole, joined as always by Nesson.com's Logan Mullen. It's been so long, or at least it feels like it has. I forgot the name of wrong podcast. Uh, but Logan, we are uh, on respective locations as this is the new norm. We have socially distanced, yet we are still efforting to bring the Bruins, uh, Nesson Bruins Podcast to all of our faithful listeners. Yeah, that's correct. And usually we joke that it's been a while since we've seen each other, but we literally have not seen each other in weeks now. It's been it's been a while. Uh, At least two weeks, right? Give or take. I guess. I literally like, that's the thing. I have no idea. Like my sense of time is is gone at this point. I think I'm preaching to the choir with literally everybody else, the entire world yeah. at this point. Uh, I don't think anybody has really any idea of, of where we're at uh, with the with time frames and such, but uh, I, I I guess that's the, the new norm for now. Uh, this is just uh, taking some getting used to, to say the least. But uh, we're, 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 you know, we're doing our best. We're about to figure it out. Yeah, and it could be worse. It, it could obviously be worse. So uh, you and I are both healthy, uh, as far as we know, healthy enough to, to bring some spicy brewing steaks and the NHL takes to the uh, – to the internet and into people's ear holes. Uh, that being said, I'm not, you know, we have a, we have a tentative schedule that we're going to kind of run through here, a tentative rundown of what we're going to talk about, but there's not a lot to talk about because there's no hockey at the moment. We, nope. don't, know, we don't know when or if hockey will be back for the 2020 season. Uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. We'll kind of discuss uh, some of the, uh, the uh, machinations and, and, uh, uh, I'm, scenarios that uh, we can finish this season and still award the Stanley Cup, but uh, I think it's understood. It will get into a little bit more. We're putting the uh, the the horse before the cart, or the cart before the horse. Cart before uh, the horse. And you yeah. want the horse in front of the cart. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think the uh, the horse at this point is uh, getting everybody healthy and safe. So until that happens, we obviously all understand that hockey kind of takes the back seat. But. All that being said, let's talk a little hockey. And we'll start with a story that you wrote for Nesson.com. Was it last week? We wrote yeah, it? Saturday. Fr- Saturday. Friday, Friday. Friday night. Friday. Whenever, you know, no better time. Not like I was out. leaving my house. So. <laughs> no better time to put out uh, internet content than on a Friday night in the middle of a global pandemic. You know, people are going to read it. Um, so uh, you put your uh, your your NHL award predictions, I guess, was uh, – I wouldn't it, even say predictions because some of it's not really how I think it's going to go, most likely. But uh, it would be – if if I had my – if, you know, I was allowed to vote, which yeah. I think after this story I might not be allowed to vote, yeah. um, this is how I would roll, you know. So that's, uh, that's pretty much where I landed here. Yeah, and I think the, uh, the reality is that um, – uh, that they're not gonna probably. I mean, I think we. Could it's tough we, to envision them finishing the regular season. Yeah, exactly. So. That's and and that was kind of where my head was. Right. Was these are regular season awards? The regular season most likely is not going to happen, or the remainder of the regular season most likely is not going to happen. Even if it does, it probably won't be enough. Like it's not going to happen in the next two weeks, right? I think April 4th or something like that was the last day of regular season games. Like we're not going to get enough of a sample size in there to at least, in my opinion, dramatically alter where we stood by the time the season was paused. 
So I figured it was as good a time as any to say, well, you know, people are itching for hockey stuff and we have something, you know, a body of work to go off of. So that was kind of the thought process here. Great. All right. Where do you want to start? Hard trophy? I guess so. Yeah. All right. This is, uh, this one took me by surprise. So you got one in the heart. I have Artemi Panarin winning the heart trophy. Um, Now I try and make sure to actually think about who is the most valuable to their team. Now it's kind of tough to, I felt like a real dink doing this because you basically have to make cases against other guys, right? So I have a very hard time making a case against Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid and Nathan McKinnon and David Pasternak. But in terms of guys who, in my opinion, almost single-handedly elevated their team, what Artemi Panarin did for the Rangers this season cannot be overlooked. I mean, the Rangers are barely out of a playoff spot when the season freezes. And considering the changes that they did make now, fully acknowledging the fact that they had some good goaltending come out of the clouds with their two young youngsters in uh, Gorgiev and Shesterkin. But Panarin, his addition not only transformed them offensively, but he was a fine enough defensive player too. And that was kind of what helped sell it for me was the fact that Dreisaitl is a classic case of a guy whose defense comes with his offense, right? Like when he's going through colder streaks, he's a pretty useless defensive player. He's not that great defensively in the first place. Um, But I feel pretty confident saying the Rangers are well out of a playoff position if they don't bring in Panarin this season. And the offensive numbers are what they are, 32 goals, 63 assists. That's in 69 games. It's 20 more points than Mika Zibanejad, uh, who is the next closest. And the thing that I used to kind of sell my argument as a whole is I looked at who – pretty much every contender's most common line mates are, right? So David Pasternak's playing with Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand. Uh, Nathan McKinnon is playing with Gabriel Landeskog and Miko Rantanen. Now, both of them were injured for stretches of the season, but nevertheless, he had some pretty good line mates. Uh, Dreisaitl and McDavid most often played together, and with Zach Cassian as well, who had, a, from Zach Cassian standards, a pretty good offensive season. Now, Panarin started playing with Zibanejad and Pavel Buchnevich. His most common line mates, though, by the time we reached mid-March, was Ryan Strom and Jesper Faust, who Strom's probably a bottom to middle six center at best, and Jesper Faust is a career, a good one, but a career fourth liner. And Panarin still had the productivity that he did. So for me, in terms of a guy who is most valuable to his team, Again, Connor McDavid's most talented player in the NHL, but in terms of a guy that's most important and most impactful to his team, I had to go with Panera. Sure. Yeah. Uh, in the number you're talking with, the comparing him to Zibanejad, uh, those numbers are probably even more slanted in yeah, Panarin's favor, if you want to call it that. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, it, he scored five goals like two weeks ago in a game. So like, <laughs> yeah. those numbers probably even jumped even more. No, Zabinijad did play 12 fewer games because he sure. was hurt, but still. Um, I I went with uh, uh, Nathan McKinnon, I think. Yeah. And I'm probably leaning a little bit too much on early season storylines with that. He, he kept the avalanche alive at the beginning. Yeah, of the and year. I think that's going to be a theme to some of my picks is I tend to put a little more – value on the value if that makes any sense and a lot of these we'll get to that with our Vesna picks as well um 
but I just look at the, you know, the injuries and everything that they went through early on in the season. He's just been so consistent all season long. Uh, they are in a position to, well, they were in a position uh, to maybe go on a run. So uh, I just look at what he's done. He's 93 points in however many games it's been. It's just, he's been their rock and it sounds yeah. corny, but I, I think, you know, I, I, like I said, especially, Oh, I don't know. I don't know how voting kind of changes with this, but I, for me, I'm going to put a lot of emphasis on the whole year and just, you know, how valuable he was to that team. And I think McKinnon yeah. is, is, is that guy. So if you asked me at the new year, he probably would have been my pick, especially because he had played so much of the season without Landeskog and Rantman. Right. Like he, he proved that he could stand alone and credit to Leon Dreisaitl too, who played a little bit without yeah. uh, Connor McDavid as well this season. Yeah, but, dry metal is going to get screwed in this whole thing, I think, because like you, the look numbers, at the art Ross. But. Yeah, it's true. The numbers are insane, but I think it's just there's such an easy qual disqualification for him where you're just like, well, yeah, but you know. Yeah, and and it's tough because how much can he can't choose who he plays with, right. right? You know, so some of it's just out of his control, but you know. You slap whoever else on his line with Cassian, like it's a. Yeah. I don't want to say it's a glorified like third line, but that's uh, he's probably not putting up the same numbers that he does without McDavid. Probably not. All right, uh, where do you want to go next? Uh, Norris. Okay. What do you got? I had Roman Yossi. Um, I mean, it's the, a two horse race, right? Like it's, it's you know, him and Carlson, right? Yossi or John Carlson? Yeah. Yeah, and so I would say that. It depends on how – I don't know. This may make me a bit of a purist, but, like, John Carlson is not a great defender. Like, he is a very middle-of-the-road to below-average defensive defenseman. The point totals are great. They are what they are. But in terms of an overall ability, my thing was that Yossi's offensive drop-off, I think he was 10 points behind Carlson when the season paused. Uh, yeah, Yossi had 65 points, uh, Carlson 75. And Yossi's a much more complete uh, player as a whole and a complete defensive player. Uh, so for me, it's tough to ignore the offensive production that Carlson had, especially right out of the shoot too. Like people were talking heart trophy for John Carlson back in you know, November or December, which you make of that what you will. But I, I think in terms of the most – not necessarily talented, I guess, but most impactful defenseman in the NHL. To me, it was Yossi. Yeah, and he's getting paid like it, too. So Yeah, he is. And he responded well to getting the contract extension during the year. It didn't really slow him down all that much at the beginning of the year. And then he got hashed out, and it's good to go. Yeah, I'm going to go with Carlson. Uh, I just – I was looking at it, and I was crunching some of the numbers. And, you know, they are – they're probably closer, you know, him and Yossi that I'd like to admit for the sake of this argument. But I just – I was looking it up. So, if he played 82 games, he'd be on an 89-point pace. And I was like, that seems like Ray Bork levels. And it is. <laughs> right. I went back and looked at it. So, from 1987 to 19, 19, 1987 to 1994, Bork won the Norris five times. He averaged 92 points for 82 games uh, over those seasons. And so, like, Carlson's right there. Uh, I You know, a third of his points have come off the power play. That doesn't feel yeah. too high to the point where it would disqualify him. Uh, I just, you know, I technically, or I usually am in the same line of thinking that you are in terms of looking at like the overall skill and all of that. And I think when you're giving out a, a defensive trophy, typically it should, you know, defense should play a pretty big uh, a role in consideration. But um, 
or I just feel like it's, it's such a historic season offensively, or it was, uh, that he, he deserves a nod there. And I think, you know, it's it's easy to forget, like, you know, you should still get credit for being good offensively too, where it's like that's part, you know, if he's scoring goals or if he's helping them score goals, that's, uh, you know, the uh, the objective of the game is still to, to score more than the other team. That so is true, yeah. You're doing your job either way. So I like Carlson there. So. Okay. Uh, what about Vesna? So Vesna, I had Connor Hellebuck. Uh, I do for so we can just that yeah that one felt like a that one felt like a layup he faces a firing squad all yeah. the time I mean in terms of players not skaters but just the Winnipeg Jets roster as a whole like they're not even sniffing a playoff spot without him um, he's league leader in games played shots against and saves and he has a 922 save percentage like that, that's absurd. Um, so I think to me, there was really not much of an argument here. Yeah. I look at this one where it's like, if I was filling out a, a, a heart trophy ballot, he at least would be top five for me. Yeah. He'd be even a, a finalist in the top three. Uh, I, he'll know, get heart votes. Like, yeah, yeah, I don't think he'll be top three, but he can no. finish to like fifth. Yeah. So, and I was looking at it and not a whole lot to add, uh, coincidentally, and maybe unfortunately for him and for the Jets. Uh, depending on how this thing goes down, he had been aces lately. Uh, he had won five of his last six starts, had two shutouts in that stretch, at 957 save percentage. He was playing out of his mind when the season ended. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, just looking around at other people's award projections and predictions and picks and stuff, um, I saw Tuka Rask's name come up a lot. And yeah. Tuka probably will finish second, I, I suppose. Uh, maybe Kemper, I don't know. Kemper kind of – Slow yeah, I think Ken- Kemper flamed out a little yeah. bit, but I do think, and I mentioned this in the story too, that I feel this year's Vezina votes will kind of show us what direction things are heading in because teams have become increasingly more dependent on those using their two goalies just about as equally right. as possible. And should guys get hit in terms of end of the season awards because they split time. Now the, I think it was Rask had played 41 games and Yarrow Halak had played 31 by the time the season paused. So it was a little bit more lopsided than last year. Where I think it was 42 and 40 in the regular season. But from a pure numbers perspective, it's kind of tough to argue against Tuka Rask and the fact that, I mean, especially early in the year, he kept the Bruins in so many games. Right. Uh, like the, the Bruins aren't even close to the record that they have without the way Rask played at the beginning of the year. But he also is playing twice a week if you have a four-game week. Like, it, So at what point do you hold that against him? Because should Ben Bishop be in the conversation? But he's also splitting time with Anton Kudobin. Uh, and that's why the guy I had, my ballot in terms of top three would be Hellebuck, Rask, and then Andre Vasilevsky, who I don't necessarily think Vasilevsky's been the third best goaltender this season, but he shouldered quite a load for Tampa. I think he's second in the league in terms of games played, and he still put up good enough numbers. Yeah. Um, I forget what point I was going to make. So, oh, Rask was Rask was playing pretty well when this thing sh- uh, shut down. He was, yeah. But, like, the usage numbers probably would look even more lopsided because they weren't going to play a whole lot of meaningful hockey. hockey no, right. Like, I think – Halak would have caught up to him in terms of game games played. We would have seen a lot of him down the stretch. And as it stood, when the when the NHL hit its pause, um, Rask. This is this is staggering to me. I looked up, compared him to Hellebuck. Hellebuck has played has seventeen more starts 
than Rask does. Yeah, yeah that, like it, it's insane. What is that? A fifth of the season? A fourth of the season? I can't do math. And right in, right in there. So that's it's a pretty wide wide gap. So well, and he's played well enough too, where it's like I don't feel like I'm voting for him just for workload. Like right. work, the workload's what grabbed my attention, but the fact that he has been a 9.22 save percentage, like as productive as he's been in the amount of shots that he's faced, he has done very well. So for me, he just, he ran right away, ran right away with it. That, I mean, they're, they're, they would probably be in the playoffs. So, I mean, it's yeah. uh, all right. What else, uh, what else you got? You want to do Jack Adams coach of the year? Uh, sure. Let's do Jack Adams. Um, I had John Tortorella. I, I do. Yeah. I, also wanted to vote for my runners up were Mike Sullivan and Paul Maurice. Uh, I guess to start with Maurice, I mean, that's a guy who him and Hellebuck, you know, it's probably Hellebuck is the number one reason the jets are even near a playoff spot. Maurice is one a, I mean, he's got a bunch of guys that don't want to play in Winnipeg to no fault of his. He right. lost Truba Myers and Ben Sherratt in the off season. Uh, he has Dustin Bufflin holding out. And then Dustin Bufflin's like, nah, I'm all set. It's clear that Patrick Line doesn't really want to play there because he'll only accept a bridge deal. Um, and still, he managed to find a way to put that team in a position to be successful. Now, similarly, John Tortorella's Blue Jackets are not only did they lose their franchise goaltender in Bobrovsky and a franchise talent in Artemi Panarin, plus Matt Duchesne, plus Ryan Dezingle, uh, they've also done dealt with a ton of injuries. They have guys who, and this might be a little strong, but probably have no business playing in the NHL right now, playing like, you know, 15 minutes a night. Um, and he's somehow managed to survive with Elvis Merzlikens as his starting goaltender because Jonas Corpusalo was hurt for a, a bunch of the year. Um, so the fact that he has that team, like gunning for – a, a metropolitan division spot in the playoffs is the third seed is insane when you consider everything that they lost. Right. Yeah. I don't have a whole lot to add. I mean, you kind of hit it all nail on the head there. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of any other arguments. You know what? It's weird. Like Cooper probably deserves some consideration. As, like, they, the way he got him to rebound. Sure. And, yeah. I don't know they, if this like, they, go ahead. They, you know, they were coming off of, you know, you go one of two ways there, right? It's right. kind of the Cassidy thing where it's, you know, you're coming off of who knows how you're going to respond. And they didn't respond very well at first, but the, you know, they, they turned it around. And now they're, they're probably arguably the best team in hockey. Yeah. And I don't know if that makes me a jerk for how I look at it, but it's like the lightning should have been as good as they've ended up being. And like the Bruins, okay. They're exceeding expectations a little bit, but they still should have been a, you know, pretty solid hockey team this year. Like they didn't have any notable departures from a team that was 60 minutes from a Stanley cup last year. So it's tough for me to look at that and be like, Oh, well, you know, he had the best team. So I think in terms of the hand that each coach had been dealt, Tortorella has done the best with very little. Because Mike Sullivan's been in a similar position in Pittsburgh where right. he's dealt with injury after injury after injury, but at the same time he has a little bit more star power uh, than the Blue Jackets do. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Any other ones? I know you do GM of the year. Um, I did. I had Joe Sackick. 
Um, that's a that one's tough to choose right now because yeah. we had what a week and a half, two weeks after the trade deadline. The comparison I made was Don Sweeney winning last year. Like, okay, he built this case in the offseason by signing Yarrow Halak. That proved to be a big one. He got John Moore, he got Chris Wagner, he got Joakim Nordstrom. But I mean, what do you think probably sold it for people when they were voting or uh the voters or the PWHA doesn't vote for this. I believe it's the broadcasters or I forget who votes for GM of the year, but what do you think they were probably looking at is the fact that you got Charlie Coyle and uh, Marcus Johansson without mortgaging the future. So for me, I figured Joe Sackick probably did the best in terms of, I don't know, that was another team that dealt with a ton of injuries and he built enough of a group there that, they really didn't drop off even without, you know, each of their top line guys had missed time this season. And he got Andre Burakovsky, which is a good deal. He, you know, Nazem Kadri didn't play as much as he probably could have, but you looked at what Tyson Berry's done in, um, in Toronto this season. It's tough to think, well, he really didn't lose all that much by getting rid of Tyson Berry. He let Semyon Varlamov walk and he signed Pavel Fran, who's or Francois or however you pronounce it who effectively took over the starting job from Philip Grubauer, all while making 80% less than what Varlamov's making in New York. So, and he got Vladislav uh, Nemestikov for cheap from the, or the senators at the trade deadline. So that would have been one to see how it panned out. But I don't know. For me, it had to have been Sackick. Sure. Yeah. Jeff Gordon. Yeah, that was that was one of my runners up. Springfield College uh, shout out there. So. True. Yeah, uh-huh. tough night to let that skew our decision making. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, all right. Uh, any other awards? I don't think there is. Uh, Calder. Oh, uh, what's that? Calder. Calder. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I I, I think I know who you probably chose for Calder. Uh, I would just go Cam Lacar blindly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure, he did. Um, I mean, it's a, again, two horse race. Right? Yeah, exactly. um, and me, this is probably the one I had the toughest time with. And it would, I, I landed with Quinn Hughes basically because I went and I looked back at what this might be an imperfect argument. I'll fully accept that. But uh, I looked at the numbers of their defensive partners. Uh, so Quinn Hughes most often plays with Chris Tanev. And Chris Tanev's numbers without Hughes in terms of Corsi were, and like high danger chances were significantly worse than when he was playing with Hughes. And McCarr was playing with Ryan Graves, who while he dropped off without McCarr, it was not a totally significant drop off. Um, And so for me, I went with Hughes. It was kind of tough, but the offensive numbers are there for both of them. Um, and then my other runner-up I have was Merzlikens from Columbus. Yeah, I I have no problem with Hughes, and I think if McCarr had played close to an 82-game schedule, you know, right. with not you know, not counting for the pause, but also the injury and stuff, mm-hmm. he'd probably I think it'd be a much easier. I think the numbers would be so staggering compared to everybody else that you'd have to vote for him. But mm-hmm. I think the injury kind of neutralizes. The, the field so yeah because the offensive yeah. numbers probably are about the same if they're playing the same amount now I will say well McCarr- no he's got I mean McCarr had 50 points in 57 games and Hughes has 53 points in 68 games so yeah. uh, you know he would have McCarr probably would have ran by him 
Maybe. That's a good point. McCarr does get a lot more offensive zone starts too. And he, uh, you know, he gets a, a better offensive team too, so he's probably picking yeah. up you know points here and there. So, all right, that was a wonderful exercise. All right, let's get into the uh, the interesting stuff. Well, not that that wasn't interesting. Wait, hold on. You what? skipped. You skipped the selkie. Did I skip? I knew it. I knew I was going to forget one. I'm I sorry. think that's the last one that we have. Yeah, this is Unless true. Unless you want to talk about the Lady Bing. No, the Lady <laughs> Selkie. Go ahead. I don't know right. how anybody right. votes on that. I, I feel like a, I feel like a jerk. What was your Selkie uh, award? I had Sean Couturier. Uh, yeah. With Bergeron and Anthony Sorelli running up. Um, the Flyers are just such a better defensive team when Couturier is on the ice. Um, and he's, he's been good for a while. He's got fantastic face-off percentage. Um, you know, his shots against are low when he's on the ice. High danger chances against are low. He, even if you use the eye test, it's, you know, they're just – Philly's a better team defensively with him on the ice. And I think – I don't know how spicy this take is. I think Anthony Sorelli is heading in the direction over the next few years where he'll be like Patrice Bergeron and Anzi Kopitar where every year he's a finalist for it. Um, but that's just me. Who did you have? Uh, I guess this was a tough one. I, I would have to go – like, I looked it up, looked all the numbers. Couturier is probably the pick. I would make an argument for Ryan O'Reilly just because yeah. they've been so good. and it, But, like, he almost – he's now in, like, that Bergeron level where he's so good it almost counts against him, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Where it's just like we we know how good you are, uh, but I mean that's you know he's been one of the best players on one of the best teams and continues to just be a monster at both ends of the ice. Uh, I also tried to make a case in my head for Marshawn because I've yeah. kind of been banging that drum all year, um, but it's like you know it's the same thing we talking about Dryside all earlier. It's you know your line mate almost hurts you in that situation where it's you know who gets the credit for his defensive numbers? Does does he right. or does Bergeron get credit for it. And I think Marshawn probably gets more credit than he actually should get more credit than he gets. Uh, and I think you look at he what really took off as penalty killer. This and that's exactly what I was going to say. The penalty killing has been, it, it feels like anecdotally, especially from somebody who watches them up close every night, like it feels like he has an odd man rush on the penalty kill every game. Yeah. And that's in addition to just the little things that he's doing on the penalty kill. But I, if I was casting a, casting a, a vote I, I i find it hard to to say like well the guy's really good on the penalty kill that's why he should win the selkie so i would probably lean right. toward couturier or uh or o'reilly just out of a uh, you know habit. I, i'm gonna take the temp i'm gonna take the temperature on this take with you Marshawn a better heart candidate than posternock yes i agree i yeah. see I, I think Marshawn is the bruins best player now i don't know if that's I, a spicy take either yeah, I think in terms of availability too. Like, yeah, I think if right. you have Bergeron, 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 if you have Bergeron playing full seasons uh, now, which I mean, hey, not his fault. There's a lot of mileage there, right. uh, but and I, but like, I think even you can make even the case if they're both healthy, like you get more out of Marshawn offensively. That kind of they're close. I mean, because what Marshawn does offensively, Bergeron almost neutralizes with his defense and vice versa or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Case could be made there for another day. Yeah, and we're not even talking about Posternock there. So. No, we're not. The fact that the 
all three of those guys are on the same line is probably a reason why if this season ends up getting canceled, it's going to be a huge kick in the pants for the Boston Bruins, uh, which is a natural segue, not the kick in the pants, but the potential of a canceled season uh, to our next topic uh, of discussion. As I already hinted at a little bit earlier, uh, we're going to try to, to fix the NHL season, assuming we get back to uh, hockey. And I think this is one of those things where this is going to sound lame, but uh, I think we both are very much under the agreement that getting everybody healthy and safe is the utmost priority. And if it costs an NHL season, then that's a price that we all have to be willing to pay as a society. Um, I think us discussing this is in no way our uh, – uh, a reflection of how lightly we're taking the yeah. situation, but it would sure be nice to have hockey again at some point this year. Right. And I think, yeah, once we insert that caveat that if they cancel the season, they cancel the season and that's fine. And we will all, all survive. Um, that's all that matters. You know, why not at least go through these exercises right now? There's nothing else to really talk about. Right. Yep. Yep. So yep. I, I won't allow myself to be completely consumed by guilt for, giving a crap about what happens during the NHL playoffs. Like if they cancel, it's fine. My life will go on, but you know, I'd prefer if they played them because that means that we got things figured out health wise. Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, all right. Um, so there's a, a conference call Tuesday uh, among all the NHL GMs. Uh, kind of just an update. Uh, according to the, uh, the TSN uh, insider training panel, uh, Bob McKenzie said the NHL has requested teams to provide available home dates through August. So playing hockey into August is on the table. If we have playoffs that could extend from August, maybe even into September, depending on who you ask. Uh, also, Pierre LeBron mentioned that the self-quarantine period has been extended. Originally, it was March 27th, which is Friday. They're now adding 10 days onto that. So what does that come out to, you know, second week of April? We'll kind March of March 37th. Exactly, March 37th. Because <laughs> um, teams are waiting to find out uh, when they're allowed to kind of get back to practice. And I think that's the caveat, too, with all of these sports is that you're going to have – you can't just go right back into games once you get the, the go-ahead. I think there's going to have to be something of a modified training camp or just even two weeks of practice, something along those lines, uh, before you can really get guys going. Uh, LeBron also said that the NHL has reached out to its ice maintenance uh, officials and. They are saying, you know, it's going to be costly, but they are confident that they can do enough inside these arenas to make sure the ice is good if they have to play into August, uh, which I think is a is going to be a huge issue. I mean, yeah, it's a legitimate concern. Boston in May, which you wouldn't is not, you know, the Garden in May is the ice gets a little soupy, and that's Dicey. not even yeah. like considering. Uh, I mean, heaven forbid, like Florida goes on a run and they're trying to play, you know, playoff games. Florida and Dallas in the right. cup final. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, you might as well. I We can get to this a little bit more. I wouldn't even rule out, like, a neutral site. Neutral site, yeah. You know, I mean, if they're playing in venues without fans, what does it right. matter? Yeah, right? go play Lake Placid. Like, pull the players and say, what is the best surface you play on? And say, all right, we're playing in Chicago or St. Louis or wherever. Edmonton has good ice. Edmonton, Winnipeg. Right, yeah. Winnipeg probably is still 48 degrees in July. Anyway. Yeah, most likely, right? Uh, right at the Bell Center. Yeah. You know. And to be, you know, this is what's at stake, too. In that same segment, Frank Cervelli said, and this isn't really surprising, revenue, revenue loss, you just can the whole season. 
We're looking at like a billion dollars. Yeah. A so they, they do not want to cancel the season. No. I, I feel I pretty confident saying that. I don't blame them either. The NBA is in the same boat, obviously. I think everybody – this is the uh, – you know, it's, it's different than a lockout or a strike or anything like that. Like, everybody's invested here. The players, the yeah, owners, yeah. the media, the league as a general, fans, everybody is in the same boat here. So, like, finding a way to make this work benefits literally everybody. The economy, like, there's – you know, this thing is – this touches everybody. So, it's going to – you know, it's – that's the – you know, the balance you have to do here. So anyway, all right, we'll just run through a couple scenarios. We'll kind of rank them as we go in terms of viability, likelihood of them happening. Number one is you finish the regular season. Every team has what? 12 to 13 games left, finish the regular season and then play a full playoffs. That's not going to happen. I would say that's very unlikely to happen. The only situation I could see that happening in is president Trump, while I disagree with this assessment, says he wants to have the country back up and running around Easter. If by some complete miracle that happens, I could see them trying to do that and say, because I mean, how many weeks would you have pushed back at that point? About three or four, like you could still get the season done around independence day and play the, you know, play it as is, but I would put the chances of that happening at less than 1%. So. Yeah, I agree. And even if, even if the, the country is back up and running, as the president says, right. you're first of all, two countries are involved here. Yeah. You have players from all over the world. And it feels like the leagues and even the states within America are operating on their own accord. So even if Trump makes this sweeping declaration that the, the country is open for business again, I wouldn't be surprised if these leagues are like, yeah, that's fine. We're not going back yet. We aren't yeah. in this happening. So I'm with you. I less than it's, one. It's, I think no matter what happens, we're done with the regular season. I agree. Uh, I think the second most likely uh, scenario here is you just freeze the entire field by playoff or point percentage and start the playoffs whenever we're ready to go. Whether that's, you know, Elliot Friedman mentioned uh, July is what everybody's starting to come to the realization. So maybe uh, the, and he even mentioned uh, <laughs> the possibility of uh, playing into September. So I think we're looking at this. If, if you're going to have a uh, full Stanley cup, uh, Stanley cup playoffs, 16 teams, seven game series, you're looking at probably spending the entire summer doing so. This still feels unlikely as well. Yeah. I think, I believe that, the league really does not want to impact next season. I think they're looking at this situation saying this is so unprecedented and we're going to operate under the assumption that this probably will never happen at least for, you know, decades upon decades where it's like, if this season we just have to eat it, then fine. It is what it is, but let's not start going down this rabbit hole. where We're playing the cup final on labor day. And then, you know, we're not getting training camps with back up until, January because I mean there, there's a an effect here right there's a, there's going to be a ripple effect where if you keep playing too late guys aren't going to want to just even with the break they're having now you think some team is going to want to come back after having not or after having played a complete Stanley Cup playoffs and then say all right we're ready to go by December 1st or whatever I mean the only situation I could see them doing this with is if they resign themselves to the fact that next season would be like the lockout shortened season in 2013, you say, we're going to play 
48 games in quick succession from January through April, and then the postseason will be pushed back about a week or two later than it otherwise would be. And then you cram in the rest of the season from July to September. But that I really don't think they want to do that. Well, that was – yeah, and I don't know. I kind of zoned out. I was looking up something else. Um, did you mention free agency in there? No, I didn't. Oh. I didn't even get to that. So that was the thing, too, is that I think this was on his 31 Thoughts podcast today, uh, Wednesday, uh, that Friedman and Jeff Merrick were talking about uh, going – you know, awarding the cup in September if you have to, to having them month off and then going straight into next season, no all-star game, no bye weeks, and playing 82 games where you're kind of probably going into late – or at least mid-summer 2021. So that's just insane to think about too. But, like, what – and Merrick brought it up. Like, what about free agency? Like, you're going to do two weeks of free agency and have, you know, players move cities, well, their families, and, like, start school in September to get the season started in mid-October or – yeah, now, granted, I mean, I guess you could make the argument, I'm not advocating for this, but you could say that's not going to impact most teams, right? 16 teams are going to be done once the season starts. Sure. Um, but like, but at, at the same time, like, that, that is going to ruin a lot of things. And then you look at how slowly the RFA markets have moved the last couple of years. Yeah. I mean, so many guys haven't signed until well into September uh, – because teams don't want to be the first one to budge. And so are you going to see a bunch of owners and GMs get pissed because they had to rush through free agency and they're signing these RFAs to these whopping contracts that had they been able to wait it out two or three months like they have the past couple of years, they would have been able to get something a little bit more agreeable to them. Like I, I can see the team side of things arguing that. It's just they're not going to jam free agency into 10 to 14 days. Maybe they should, though. Like, okay. well, no, because it's like uh, Andrew, I think Andrew Brandt's his name. Uh, he used to work on the Packers front office and he's like a big sports business guy on Twitter. Now he's, he brings us up a lot is like deadlines spur activity. You know what I mean? So yeah. if you're, you know, if you have two weeks, you got two weeks and you got to move fast and you're going to see activity. Um, Cause nobody's going to, you know, Teams are going to want to fill their rosters, and players are going to want to have a place to play. So, uh, but that I don't think that's good. I, that's not something I would be. Trying. I will say, and it'll probably, at least from a team perspective, ruin things going forward, right? Because then, in ensuing years, players and their agents are going to say, "Well, we managed to get this done in ten days last year. Like, why are we just continuously kicking the can down the road here?" so that you can try and talk us down in terms of our AAVs. Right, so. yeah. All right, uh, let's get into some more off-the-wall – not off-the-wall, but whatever, different uh, um, scenarios. Uh, Merrick actually brought this up. What about going home until September and then playing the playoffs in September and then into December, and you're going to cut the – is this what you said? Is this basically what you said? I don't think so. So basically the playoffs start in September. Yeah, I, my, I was operating under the impression that playoffs start in July. Yeah, I don't think – it's an interesting idea, but I wouldn't do that. So, um, it, it, And that would also affect the, uh, the desire to play 82 games next year. So, right, um, right. Um, all right, uh, the one thing that I do think this has been bandied about, uh, I think Chris Johnson had this first with Sportsnet. Uh, basically, it was a 24-team tournament um, where, 
and you and I were kind of kicking this around, and I looked up, and it was the exact same thing that he was saying. But basically, you have a play-in tournament for the bubble teams. You go off a point percentage. So the top four teams by point percentage in each conference get a buy into the actual playoffs. And then the next eight teams in each conference uh, go nuts, and they play either one-game playoffs or three-game series to, to, get, uh, to set the field. Uh, I think this is probably – the fairest way to do it and probably the most likely. I would agree. Well, and as I was telling you earlier, when we were chatting about this on the phone, like this all depends on Gary Bettman and the board of governors, let's call it their pain tolerance, right? Because the product is probably not going to be fantastic out of the shoot. Now people will be craving hockey. They'll be excited to see anything, but say this stuff doesn't start until you know, mid-May or June, you're going to have teams that haven't played in two months and all of a sudden they're playing one game to decide their season. That said, this is, again, such an unusual situation where they've got to be willing to kind of get crazy a little bit. And I think you can't look at, I mean, let's use the Eastern Conference. Right now the wild card teams would be Carolina and Columbus. The teams that are within a point or two of them that are right on the outside of the picture I don't know how you can look at the Islanders or the Rangers or the Panthers, especially since those teams have games in hand on Columbus uh, with the exception of the Rangers and say, yeah, sorry. Like we're just freezing it here. Like they, there will be an uproar if that happens. So I think they have to come up with some little tournament, do it with the point percentage where there's a playing game. All right. The product's probably going to be crap. Like give them a week to practice a week to get back up to speed. They could do like the Bruins did the last year at the inter-squad scrimmage to try and get some sort of game feeling. And then, you know, you just have to acknowledge that this is an unusual situation and that things are going to be weird and the product isn't going to be as good as it's going to be, especially off the jump. Yeah, and it's not going to matter because people are going to be so desperate to have hockey, right. playoff hockey back, have any sport of any kind back uh, that I don't, I don't think it's going to matter. It's going to be an imperfect uh, scenario or system no matter what you do, but you got to find a way to, to get something back on the ice if it's deemed healthy. I think this one makes all the sense in the world because it just happens to work out that the top 24 teams in the league right now right. are all 500 or better. Like there's a perfect 500-point percentage cutoff there that you can take and it works out per- it almost works out like it's meant to be like it's yeah. nuts looking at it and the last two teams in in each conference montreal in the east and chicago in the west like you're getting original six franchises in there right right and you're gonna get montreal versus pittsburgh or something like that in that first round whatever it's gonna be like it works out well it's made for tv they have to, I, you know, I would suggest redoing a, the TV thing. I don't know if you can do that on the fly where if you get, I mean, this is selfishly too from a, uh, our company's perspective, but like give the RSNs more, you know, coverage, allow them, whether it's an in-market blackouts, whatever it's going to be, get weird, get as creative as you can and try to fix this thing uh, in the short, short term to help you out in the long term. I think they will. And I think you have to operate under the impression that's like, we're going to bank on this not happening again, or at least in our lifetimes to where it's like, let's get nuts. Let's do some crazy stuff that we wouldn't have otherwise done. And I think this is wishful thinking, but kind of, like I said, if it, you know, you're not going to recoup your losses, but no. you're, gonna, you're probably going to do better than you expect just because people are going to be so desperate for it. Well, so. and it's better than not playing at all. Right. Yeah. I, my guess, hard cutoff date, I think it's June 1st. I think I if they're not clear to go until June 1st, we're not getting a, a hockey season. I agree, but I think we're going to have hockey and basketball into the summer, assuming this thing doesn't get 
a whole lot worse, which is still on the table, unfortunately. But you can only take it day by day at this point. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, that's it for us, I think. Um, hopefully we'll be back to preview that at some point. But uh, in the meantime, you and I are going to kind of kick around some ideas. I know we have something on tap for next week uh, to have a podcast up and, and ready. So we'll, we'll kind of – we'll try to get creative. Maybe we'll reach out to, to some people on our Rolodexes and, and try to come up with some uh, off-the-wall off ideas uh, moving forward to, to keep the, the Ness and Bruin podcast going. So Cool. Anything else, Logan? No, that's all, all right. Mike. You stay safe. You too, bud. Everyone else stay safe. Definitely. Uh, we will uh, talk soon. Thanks for joining us.